You are listening to the voice of Ahlu Sunnah Wal Jama'at. Welcome to this, another edition of Business Matters with me, your host, Alameen Templeton. And you join us on a day when the weather has turned into a lovely almost spring day, isn't it? Yeah, and the JC has also turned a slightly negative today on 57,241.55. That's the all share index at the end of the day, losing 1.37%. They say largely into, uh, international investors pulling out of the market. Uh, emerging markets are kind of like uh, on the cusp at the moment. You've got the United States uh, Fed uh, tomorrow is due to make its decision as to, uh, I suppose you could say, how, how far it is going to cut interest rates. Entire market believes like almost 100% that uh, interest rates are going to go down in the United States. Uh, disagreement over whether or not it will be 025 uh, or uh, rather 25 percentage points or 50 percentage points or 75 percentage points, meaning some people are saying that uh, the U.S. Fed is going to reduce interest rates on 2.75. My, imagine having interest rates of 2.75. Uh, 2.75 uh, is the interest rate at the moment. Uh, most people expect it to drop to 2.5. Uh, some are saying it should go to 2.25, whereas uh, some of the more extreme uh, commentators are saying it should go down to 2%. Mm. Right, well, that's a much ado about nothing, wouldn't you say? Hmm? The world's biggest uh, economy, the indispensable nation to the world, having thrown $9 trillion at its stock markets uh, and bonds over the last 10 years. Uh, is unable to afford an interest rate of 2.75%. Uh, growth is around about 2% in the United States, uh, 2.5%. No, actually, it rose to around about 3% at the moment. Higher than South Africa, so we below, uh, we're below 1%. I think it's around about 0.9%, 0.7%, depending on who you're talking to. Um, and, uh, well... We've already lowered our interest rate to, uh, we, we lowered it 25 basis points. So all things being equal, that means the United States Fed is also going to lower its interest rate to, to uh, um, 25 basis points, just like we did. We, can, we tend to foreshadow the United States Fed, uh, you know, independence of the South African Reserve Bank being uh, underlined very, very clearly in that anything the United States Fed does, we shall do too. Or we shall do better, because we'll do it before them. Um, is that an independent reserve bank? One that is basically tied uh, to the fluctuations of the U.S. Fed, the whims and fancies of Donald Trump. Um, is the U.S. Fed independent? Uh, the U.S. Fed doesn't seem to be interested in uh, lowering interest rates until Donald Trump started jumping up and down. And then Elizabeth Warren, who's seen as the front runner for uh, the Democratic Party in their upcoming election, presidential election, she's also calling for uh, lower interest rates, saying it needs, needs to be done now. It needs to be done now. Um, one wonders if this is the United States moving on to a war footing or if uh, the foundation is simply crumbling. Uh, one can't be too sure. Uh, you could say that perhaps the United States is moving on to a war footing because its foundation is crumbling and both uh, opinions are correct. Mm, okay. Uh, well, I mean, you know, there is uh, most definitely a strident tone coming out of the United States in terms of its international relations, but one can't be too sure if that's desperation and fear, fear and loathing in the United States, or is it simply uh, Donald Trump's um, mania infecting uh, the rest of uh, the political discourse that comes out of that country? All right. Well, okay. So um, the Rand had a bit of a mixed day today, uh, losing ground against the dollar and the euro, um, only slightly slow, but gaining ground against the pound. Uh, and that, again, is more a function of, of international issues than local issues, uh, although it wasn't a great day for South Africa either. Uh, ESCOM came out today saying that uh, they've made a 20,000, uh, a 20 billion rand, land, rand loss. I think that's for the half year. Uh, just let me uh, check up on that. Um, ESCOM. 
uh, it'll do an Apple F, you see, you know, with Word, you do, you press Apple F, and uh, it'll search for words. So, so we'll search for SCOM, oh, sorry there, uh, SCOM. Uh, and then it goes to there. 20 billion rand loss. A full year loss of 20 billion rand. Well, that's not bad, huh? you know. You know, when you're considering his nice that a quarter or a half year. No, in actual fact, that's a full year loss. Oh, sure. Well, that is a relief. I mean, it feels better, doesn't it? Uh, you know, okay, right. Okay, so we only lost 20 billion rand in the in the whole year so far. And like, you know, just last month, um, Titanbul went through 59 billion rands at them. So that we should more than cover up everything. Aren't they fine? Well, uh, you know, it's not good news for the fiscus. Um, it's uh, putting a major strain on South Africa's finances. Nearly $500 billion in debt is ESCOM. I mean, you see these figures coming out, $440 billion, but that was $440 billion, um, a few months ago. And subsequently, there have been two uh, bailouts uh, to ESCOM. And, um, you know, either those bailouts are going onto ESCOM's books or government is just giving it the money for free. Uh, which is, uh, in essence, what a bailout is in some ways. Um, so, yeah, okay. So, ESCOM, uh, 20 billion rand loss uh, for the full year. Uh, didn't uh, didn't knock the rand as, as hard as one would have expected. Uh, in fact, for a while today, the rand seemed to be recovering, despite the bad news coming out of ESCOM. But then again, as I say, there seems to be more function of international markets than local conditions. Uh, which is very much the case usually with how the rand is moving. Uh, you wouldn't believe it uh, with the kind of propaganda that comes out of um, the public relations agencies for the uh, currency uh, foreign exchange uh, sector in the world, the two main uh, public relations agencies for currency traders in the world. They call Bloomberg and Reuters. I know people kind of think that they're journalism outlets, but they're not. They're not they're public relations agencies for the currency uh, trading industry. Uh, 90% of all currency trades happen on Bloomberg and Reuters terminals. Did you know that? Hmm? 90%. Well, I said often enough on the show, if you didn't know that, well, then you've only just joined us. Yeah, 60% by Bloomberg, 30% by Reuters. In a way, kind of like mirroring um, futures oil trades. The uh, same kind of percentage uh, futures oil trades happen in the United States. 60% of the world's oil futures trade happens in the United States in Atlanta. And uh, the other 30% in London. So, in a way, uh, it's uh, very much a mirror of, uh, of the market uh and um you know uh when you when you've got the main trading platforms for currency traders around the world and then you combine that with journalism then things start getting really dodgy you know you can't exactly call yourself impartial uh and uh i say i say i aver i state that in actual fact Reuters and Bloomberg news stories that come out are not a reflection of journalism, but are in actual fact uh, write-ups for um, Reuters and Bloomberg clients. And uh, and the journalism, you know, it's not journalism. You can't be an independent organization if you're so intimately and intrinsically intertwined with the market. You cannot be independent. You always, you, well, what, what's going to happen if your biggest uh, customers start becoming upset with you? Hmm? Are you going to continue pushing a certain line? Uh, you, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, but the uh, the conflicts of interest are just too glaring. It's a bit like uh, um, uh, Trevor Manuel and uh, All Mutual today. Peter Moyo, a major win for him uh, in the in the Johannesburg High Court. The court ruling that he must be reinstated immediately. Uh, that they're not to, uh, uh, allowed to find an alternative for him, and um, and that they have to pay his costs, which means an, an overwhelming victory for the, uh, I suppose we can still call him the old mutual chief executive. Old mutual are obviously not very happy with that, but there you go. You know, you want to bring in Mr. Rothschilds, um, uh, Trevor Manuel. Hmm? Trevor Manuel, Mr. Rothschilds International, chairman of Rothschilds International. You make him chairman of uh, Old Mutual as well. And then when uh, issues affecting both those companies come to the fore, he's such a wonderful man, is he? Hasn't he got a lovely wife, Mrs. Rothschild? Um, 
Yeah, former APSA um, chief executive, Maria Ramos. Well, I suppose she should be Maria Rothschild or Maria Manuel. No, I don't worry about that. Anyway, South Africa's top power couple uh, heading into their 70s. Um, yeah, and uh, Trevor Manuel thought he could get away with it. He even got Old Mutual to foot his bill uh, when he took on the Gupta brothers uh, over Sahara computers. And uh, Old Mutual footed his bill. And Peter Moyer said, this is, this is completely unacceptable. Why, why are we footing uh, a person's private uh, legal um, pursuits that have got nothing to do with Old Mutual, got nothing to do with the company? Why is Old Mutual paying for that? And uh, he complained about it. He's the chief executive. That's his job. That's his job to do that. He says then that Trevor Manuel started waging a campaign against him. And that, in essence, was the reason why he was fired from Old Mutual. Because he continued, he insisted on raising conflicts of interest, points of conflict of interest. Not his conflict of interest, Trevor Manuel's conflict of interest. And that was the reason why he was fired, he says. And it would seem that the court has overwhelmingly overwhelmingly accepted his point of view. We wait with bated breath to, to hear whether or not Old Mutual is going to appeal. Um, you know, big banking groups like this are accustomed to getting their way in the courts. And most definitely today, uh, that did not happen. And one would think uh, Old Mutual combined with the Rothschilds. And they would kind of like presume it's like a dead cert that uh, the court would go their way, one would think, you know. But yes, in the rare display of brilliant independence by our judiciary, today the court found that no. In actual fact, Peter Moyo is perfectly within his rights. And they, they are not allowing, he has forbidden Old Mutual from uh, finding uh, an alternative to Peter Moyo. He has to be put back in that position. And uh, I would presume uh, that uh, the court finding has immediate effect, which means that uh, Mr. Moyo should be returning to his um, gilded soft leather chair, comfy chair for use at meetings, tomorrow morning. I wonder wonder if he'll be calling an emergency board meeting. Uh, he uh, he's, This is only part A of his legal action, and it would appear that uh, he's pretty confident he's going to win, because now he's going for uh, defamation um, costs, as well as, well, it says reputational damage, uh, which may be, I'm not sure, maybe different from defamation, uh, but um, pharma, and um, pharma is... No, reputation, pharma. Yeah, no, same thing. Okay, well, it looks like, it seems to me it's a, it's a defamation case that he's bringing against them. And uh, that is also going to be a very interesting case to watch. This was just an, uh, an urgent application uh, to bring about his reinstatement. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure uh, Old Mutual head offices uh, will be an interesting place to be tomorrow morning when Mr. Moyo drives his car into the parking lot and he goes to his customary parking spot. I wonder if he's going to have, um, you know, you'll see like a sort of uh, Maria Ramos uh, had been painted in there and now it's painted out and uh, <laughs> Peter Moyo has been pointed back in, painted back in. <laughs> I wonder. I wonder if, um, if Peter Moyo's parking spot is still the same, or if they're going to like uh, say, "Okay, where are we going to put him? We're going to put him naked. We're going to give him a parking spot next to the public toilets. We're going to move his head office from the corner office, and we're going to put it down in the basement." I wonder. Uh, I'm sure our mutual headquarters tomorrow morning will be a fascinating place to be and uh, but unfortunately we're not going to be there uh, gold uh, today uh, recovering somewhat as a 1421 uh, yesterday and now it's 1428 today uh, rising slightly um, the rand is 1420 against the dollar um, uh, losing against the dollar slightly 1727 against the pound gaining against the pound and 1583 against the euro Ah, now the pound's uh, big problems uh, arise from uh, my toe-headed cohort, um, Brian Johnson. Got a hair, hair coloring, skin coloring, same as me. Uh, but I'm not as pudgy as he is. Uh, I haven't been living the good life, you know what I mean. Um, and, uh, yeah, 
So there's old Boris Johnson thinking uh, he's going to be able to turn uh, Blythe's fortunes around, much in the same way as Jack Sparrow does in um, Pirates of the Caribbean. Very much uh, he sees himself as being a swashbuckling kind of hero type. And he's sure that, you know, he's just a force of will and conviviality and its bubbling personality is going to be enough to turn Blythe around. Um, the European Union uh, Commission um, bureaucrats, uh, European Union politicians, completely uh, cold against Mr. Johnson. I mean, he is notorious in political circles in the world. It was, it was really funny recently, you know, in, uh, when um, uh, Putin, Vladimir Putin, the Russian uh, president, was criticizing uh, UK democracy. Um, saying that uh, liberalism is dead and saying that populism seems to be coming to the fore. So, like, you know, the most populist uh, politician that England has had, you know, I'd say in the, like, the last, uh, well, since Winston Churchill, basically. Um, he does have a personality. Unfortunately, it's a very flawed personality. Uh, yeah, the first kind of politician with a personality to enter White House since Winston Churchill Um is simply uh, not uh, winning any favor in Europe. Uh, they say he can come along. Uh, perhaps, you know, they, they say there's an unpredictability within his personality. Uh, and maybe that will be work out for the good for everyone. And uh, this uh, one politician was asked, what do you mean by that? You say the unpredictability is good. He says, yes, well, you see, uh, everyone uh, is expecting Boris Johnson to go crashing out of uh, the European Union, a hard Brexit, as they call it. Uh, but perhaps, you know, he's going to be surprising everyone with his unpredictability and he's going to stay in. There'll be no Brexit. Uh, well, you know, that would be typical of uh, politicians all the way around the world. Uh, I think Brexit would be very bad for the UK. I also think Boris Johnson is very bad for the UK, which is I'm glad. I'm glad Boris Johnson is there. Um, it would appear that, uh, you know, uh, the kind of weak-willed people that are making it into the upper echelons of political parties. I mean, um, look at the EFF. Uh, look at Ace Magashule. You know, uh, carpetbaggers. Um, they would no, uh, no, they don't appear to have any desire to contribute or to build, uh, but simply to break up and uh, and chow. Yeah, um, I see the ANC coming out today and saying that they remain committed to nationalisation of the South African Reserve Bank. Uh, but other than you know, coming out with. Uh, you know, trite phrases like uh, we need to expand the mandate or need to discuss expanding the mandate. No specifics in terms of how you want to expand the mandate. Uh, no specifics anywhere. You know, we want to nationalize the Reserve Bank. You know, these are like, um, these are populist calls, but uh, uh, it, uh, it means that basically the ANC is... Um, basically meandering down a path of, of no real intent. It doesn't appear as though the ANC has got any real idea of what it wants to do with the nationalized Reserve Bank. I mean, you know, in 2017, before the elections, they needed to sound a little bit more kind of like populist and, um, and radical. And so, yeah, you know, that's a nice kind of like radical sounding call. Uh, but uh, Jesse Duarte today uh, going to great pains to explain to the market that in actual fact, no, the ANC doesn't want to do anything in terms of interfering with the independence of the Reserve Bank. <sighs> Which makes you just kind of like sit back and say, oh. Uh, what kind of level of debate are we having in this supposedly uh, the ruling party in South Africa? You know, it, it takes me back to the days of 1994. Um, we had uh, ANC politicians returning to South Africa, and uh, they came up with some really um, fantastic comments and, and, and pithy statements about uh, the context of apartheid right at that very moment. Um, Esau Pahad went to, went to Parliament to listen to some of the debates, and he walked out shaking his head and said, what, you, you call that debate? Is that the level of intellectualism in, in, among these people? This country's in serious trouble. Well, I mean, you know, uh, we've got a major uh, turnaround in policy 
a, a big uh, kind of like looming iceberg on our policy seas, and that's nationalization of the Reserve Bank. So what does the ANC mean by nationalization of the Reserve Bank? Well, well, basically, you know, you, you pay over 200,000 bucks uh, to um, existing shareholders. You're not allowed to get more than that on any given year returns from the Reserve Bank. And you say bye-bye shareholders. That's all it's going to cost, according to Lesetia Khanyago last week. 200,000 rand. You pay off the shareholders and you say bye-bye. The shareholders don't come back. And then that's it. The Reserve Bank nationalized. Now we don't have any uh, private uh, shareholders. It's only government, 100% shareholder. Okay, fine. Right, well, um, uh, that was um, a moment of, uh, you know, um, symbolic uh, meaning. But in terms of uh, material way forward, not much was contributed. Uh, much ado about nothing. Um, sound and, lots of sound and fury signifying nothing. Uh, you could say. Um, and maybe that was all it was meant to be. Um, a crumb thrown to the crowds before the elections. Post-elections, Eishmagashule, uh, you know, he's still in party mode. You know, sometimes, um, you, you know, you, you know, when you, you, you're forced to go to those end-of-year parties. Hmm? And, um, and uh, the, the, some sections of the of the staff are starting to get a little bit boisterous with some uh, liquid imbibement under the belt, and uh, they don't quite catch on when uh, when the one guy comes along, ding ding ding, and he hits on his glass so that the chief executive can uh, start making his speech. There's always like one guy in a corner somewhere who's right in the middle, is in full full performance of some kind of joke or idiotic thing that they're sharing with each other as they do at these parties, and he just continues going on and on and on until eventually someone hits him over the head or pours a glass of champagne on top of him, and that and that shuts him up. And basically, that's Ace Magosuli. It strikes me, he doesn't actually realize that this was just meant to be a crumb thrown to the uh, thrown to the populace. Either that or he's hoping he's going to be able to uh, climb back on board and, and take over from Cyril Ramaphosa. Um, we had an interesting discussion this morning um, about whether or not uh, Cyril Ramaphosa is back in the firmly in the driving seat after this weekend's NEC National Executive Committee meeting. Um, it looks as though Derek Hanekom has gotten off lightly. It doesn't look as though the NEC is leaning towards Ace Magashule. It would appear that um, that uh, Sul Ramaphosa is holding the centre, and uh, he is forcing it along his direction. That's what it looks like at the moment. But of course, you know, ANC being the ANC, things could change overnight. Uh, but then again, okay, that's also a reflection of South Africa's politics. I mean, we don't have these discussions about the DA, do we? No. The DA, for me, is a dead party. Uh, a dead party. You know, it's basically it's, it's basically playing the same kind of role as the EFF. I think the corporate sector is uh, starting to come to accept that the DA is never actually... It may well represent their interests 100%, but it's never, ever, 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 ever going to represent a majority of South Africa's population in any way whatsoever. Um, you know, the DA was able to undo the National Party, but that was because it was largely appealing to white voters in South Africa. And we know that white people in South Africa tend to have this like corporate identity, don't they? You know, they freak out when you start speaking about um, changing the ownership structures and shareholding things and the 25% black ownership and so on. White people kind of like get all edgy and so on, but as you know, really, in essence, it's got nothing to do with them unless they're like a major shareholder in these companies. And, um, you know, I would say that most white South Africans in aspect, just like most other South Africans, have, haven't got the faintest clue what's going on on the JSE. Uh, less than 5% of the country is like, like fully, I would say, actively involved in the, the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. Um, and in fact, have a, have, a, have, a, have a good idea in terms of how, <coughs> excuse me, how laws become laws in the country, for instance. Um, what are the rules of parliament? And, uh, what does it mean if there's a vote of no confidence? And, uh, you know, um, um, most well, people living in this country have got no clue about those things. And in actual fact, have got no interest in it whatsoever. Hmm. Uh, and I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, 
uh, white South Africans far more tended to like you know want to work for the good of the system, uh, and that's mainly because their family structures are intimately welded into the system. In fact, their their, their family structures have been formed by the system. They've been encouraged to break their family ties and to go and establish nuclear families everywhere, mom and dad and the children. And you look after the children and you educate them. And as soon as they're educated, you chuck them out the house and they must go and fend for themselves uh, And because you've educated them and so on. And, you know, you've been saving up for your pension your whole life. And uh, now it's time for you to go on holiday. When the time for you to kick the kids out of the house um, and now so you retire and it's time to go on holiday and you discover to your shock and horror that you've only got enough money for about three to five years. And, um, you know, how much longer are you going to live? 96% of people saving up for their pensions at the moment are not going to have enough for retirement. 96%. And that is not just a South African anomaly. It's common around the world, uh, which underlines the fact that the system is failing. No, no, no. The system isn't failing. The system has failed. You know, you get an you you, you get a 4% um Pass mark. You, if you get a 4% on an exam anywhere in the world, other than if you like um, trying to apply to be chairman of uh, or chief executive of ESCOM, uh, you know, you walk along, you, you, you do an exam and you get 4% in that exam. The only place where you're going to uh, pass is if you're applying for a chief executive uh, position at ESCOM, I would say. Other than that, there's no, 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 no examiner anywhere in the world will accept 4% as a pass rate. And that, and that is uh, the, the performance mark of South Africa's pension industry. 4%. 4% of people are going to have enough money to retire on. Uh, of course, you know, uh, it's very different uh, racially skewed kind of um, figure that. Uh, you, have to, you have to remember uh, that most people uh, in their 40s and 50s and older uh, who were not white, <laughs> well, you know, they're still not white, um, uh, uh, only white people had the, like full exposure and benefit of the pension funding system during apartheid. After 1994, um, people started getting into uh, formal employment. Other races started moving into the system, and uh, so they were in a position where now they, you know, they 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 get an official pension saving scheme every month, pension deductions, and so on. But the vast majority of people in this country, never had any exposure to that during apartheid. So most people uh, in their 30s and 40s and 50s uh, in 1994 uh, had no pension plan behind them whatsoever. And uh, if they only started getting into this pension-saving uh, environment after that, uh, say that they haven't missed one pension payment uh, ever since 1994, uh, then some of them have, have, have maybe saved up enough for their pensions. But many uh, have, have since had to retire, and they, 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 there's no ways that they had enough money to retire on. Never. Never, 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 never. So you have to ask yourself, how are those people staying alive? How on earth are those people staying alive? I'll tell you how they're staying alive. Either they, uh, they're living on scraps, they're starving and they're in desperation, they got a thousand eight hundred rand um, uh, government pension a month. That's a monthly pension, or they are depending dependent on family for support. Which says to me that in actual fact, then, and it's not a nuclear family they're falling back on for support. It's the extended family they're falling back on too. They're falling back on their brothers and their sisters, their cousins, their children, their grandchildren. All of these are coming together in order to sustain them in their old age. That being the case, I mean, that is a clear line indicating that here you need some kind of government intervention and stimulus. Stimulus for this place that looks after these people. Because you can argue that in actual fact, uh, the people who are going to have enough money re to retire on, say so that's 4% of the population, uh, are 
have been looked after by the pension funding system. 96% of the population are not being looked after by the pension funding system. That means that whatever this grey space is, where these people are being looked after, this grey space is looking after 96% of the population, and it's doing so without government support. Hmm? Isn't that crazy? Huh? Shouldn't Gorgos be getting some support if, uh, if they're looking after their grandchildren? There is something like that. But what about uh, children who are looking after their parents? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not just talking about state grants. I'm talking about a whole uh, organizational network that looks after these people. <clears throat> it's an organizational network uh, that, in, that, that means that poor people can have children easier than rich people. If rich people have a baby, man, it's like a financial disaster for them. Uh, if poor people have a baby, it's like, you know, hardly anyone even notices. How can that be possible? If people who don't have any money can afford to increase the population, but people with all the money and all the advantages simply cannot. Doesn't that also say something else about our system? Doesn't it, doesn't it mean that our system is in actual fact anti-human? You know, it prevents us from reproducing and having children. Hmm? Whereas this other gray area out there that looks after 96% of our population. 29% unemployment rate came out today. Yeah, that's South Africa's latest unemployment rate. Okay, we'll, we'll get on to these issues just after this uh, break. We're going to have to go for a quick word from the marketplace. Inshallah, we'll be back in a moment. You are listening to the voice of Ahlus Sunnah wal Assalamu alaikum, welcome back. Well, if you want to phone in, remember our telephone number here in Linnaeus is 10 or you can WhatsApp us a message on 084-786-3132, 084-786-3132, or you can telephone us on 11 Yes, well, okay, so just before the break, we told you that uh, our... Unemployment rate rose uh, to 29%, rose like one and a half percentage points from 27.5% uh, in the previous quarter. This is uh, for the second quarter of South Africa. Uh, the Labor Force survey came out today. 29% uh, unemployment rate. And, you know, it's not just government grants that are looking after those people. And, and you know, our employment rate counts people who are still looking for jobs. Uh, whereas unemployed uh, are not looking for job. No, in fact, I, I, you have to be, you are unemployed if you're still looking for a job. Uh, and they don't count you um, if you give up looking for a job. Uh, I don't know where you fall into what category. It kind of reminds me of that you be 40 from the 1980s. I'm a one in 10, a number on the list. Nobody knows it, but I don't exist. Yes, yeah, uh, it's a very much a, uh, the statistical anomaly. Uh, many people say that in actual fact, the real, the real rate of joblessness in South Africa is far above um, uh, 29% and may actually be in the 40%. Uh, and uh, that doesn't bode well, you know, in terms of political stability. We also have a very young, a youthful population. Uh, and it is these youth, this youthful population that is not getting the jobs. And uh, that, uh, that, that just leads to mounting political instability in a country. It means that the demagogues like Ace Magashule and uh, Julius Malema uh, have got far more uh, width of scope in order to uh, play their game. Um, I mean, look, look at these guys. Listen, if, if, if they were really serious about uh, the calls that they've made, they would have done something substantive about it, which kind of like reminds me of that uh, that little, um, well, I mean, you know, I said it as a joke. I didn't really take it seriously. You can't take something like that seriously. Remember I suggested a few weeks ago that that um, 
maybe in actual fact uh, these uh, these um, commissions of inquiry that we're seeing, all this big brouhaha, this kind of like, you know, vying for leadership positions within the ANC, the EFF shouting at the, AF, uh, the ANC and the DA, uh, you know, doing whatever it's doing, kind of like so slowly shrinking into a hole. I mean, uh, you, you see the the the, um, the public disobedience taking place in Chwane right now. That's what happens when you you have a DA municipality. That is a direct function of Pretoria, Chwane, having having a DA uh, municipality. Uh, the ANC says they fully support uh, the protest actions taking place in Pretoria today. Uh, if you were in the traffic in Pretoria today, you probably are fuming. Um, this is the second day in a row where um, municipal, municipal workers have been allowed. How else can you describe it? You know, I mean, you know, fool me once, uh, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. See, W, that's how you're supposed to say it. Uh, yeah, George W. Bush once uh, became famous in the international <laughs> when he got that uh, saying completely mixed up. All right. So, uh, you know, yesterday... Uh, bus drivers. Now, now, now you know, uh, municipal buses are pretty big, you know. It's not like uh, you can put them in your back pocket and, and walk out of the gate. Um, somehow or other, um, people got hold of the keys for the buses at the bus depot and then uh, drove all the buses into the center of the city, parked them in the intersections, and then took the keys and disappeared. Okay, fine. So at the end of the day, you know, they eventually get all the buses restarted and they're taken back to uh, back to the depot. Uh, and then this morning, exactly the same thing happens. It can only happen two days in a row if um, there's been definite collusion uh, and facilitation. Um, and in a way, you know, the DA says that we are the efficiency party. Look how well we manage Cape Town. Mm. Okay, so if the DA is so efficient, how come they weren't? Uh, how come uh, workers were able to steal buses from right under their noses for two days in a row? Uh, DA says that they're competent in all these things. If they're competent, why weren't they able to stop something like that from happening? Uh, the ANC came out today and said we fully support this protest action. As a result of this, uh, the PIC investigation, uh, the Commission of Inquiry, was unable to go ahead for a second day in a row. I kind of like sat there today and I was thinking to myself, maybe that Dan Majila is behind all of these traffic protests. <laughs> uh, Dr. Dan Majila, the former chief executive of the Public Investment Corporation, the uh, body that administrates uh, the vast majority of uh, pension funds, pension monies from the government employees' pension scheme, pension fund. Um, yeah, so eh, do you reckon maybe Dan Majila is behind these, uh, these, the, the, the traffic inventory this morning? Phew, I need a bit of a rest from all these questions. I can't go and call up some bus driver friends of mine and see if we're going to hijack some buses. Ah, uh, yeah. Mm, well, anyway, so yeah, um, the ANC, uh, not happy. Uh, well, or rather the, uh, the ANC is happy with the protests that are happening in Pretoria today. Um, you know, uh, we, we, we are stuck in something here in South Africa. And, uh, I mean, I, I saw uh, the chief executive of ESCOM today actually speaking about being in a death spiral. Uh, so uh, that being the case, I, I reckon maybe we should just go and, and, and read what the ESCOM chief executive had to say um, after the, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the, 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 at the ESCOM results today. Um, uh, yeah, so anyway, everyone was waiting to see what uh, the ESCOM financials were going to do to the RAND. Uh, immediately after they were released, in fact, the, uh, the RAND gained, uh, gained strength. Um, that was after ESCOM had reported a net loss after tax of 20.7 billion RAND for 2019 financial year. Uh, with municipal debt rising to some 20 billion rand, all on its own. Uh, the attribute of the loss to lower than expected 5.23% tariff increase granted by um, uh, NERSA, National uh, Energy Regulator, um, a 1.82% decline in sales volumes as a result of people moving off-grid off or as a result of people's businesses just going out of business and so not being around the next year, you know. ESCOM basically killing its clients. And above uh, inflation, wage settlement with unions, 
has got 48,000 workers and needs to cut them down to 16,000. Uh, ESCOM needs 16,000 workers, uh, all, of the, um, all of the experts say. ESCOM needs 16,000 workers, they've got 48,000 workers. And that was a deliberate increase. We deliberately doubled. Um, well, I suppose it was doubled and then it was uh, increased by a third. But, uh, but there you go. Okay, the um, uh, outgoing chief executive, uh, Pakamani Hadebe, who quit his job in May, citing health reasons, his last day uh, is tomorrow. Uh, so, you know, there's going to be two different uh, chief executive stories being told tomorrow when Peter Moyer returns to Old Mutual. And Pakamani Hadebe bids farewell to ESCOM. Um, Jabu, Mubu, Jabu Mabuza uh, is going to be taken over uh, from Pakamani Hadebe which has many people in the tiz. Some people are completely shocked. Um, Raymond Parsons, I saw the former um, um, Chamber of Commerce uh, head for so many years, also a voice of apartheid, you could say. Uh, he says, well, you know, um, it's not too bad. It's an interim measure. Maybe it's not that much of a shock. Uh, but the rest of the market says it is a major shock because one thing that it underlines is that the government, after all this time, huh? Uh, Pakamani Khadebe announced his resignation in May. It's now July, and they still haven't found a replacement. One would think, you know, it's a well-paid job. But uh, ESCOM has had 10 chief executives in the last 10 years, and that also says something. Um, it speaks of an inability of central government uh, to get its, um, its parastatals under, under their control. Um, speaking uh, at a briefing at ESCOM's headquarters today, Mabuza, the now incoming uh, chief executive, said ESCOM's problems could not be solved in isolation overnight. You know, then they start speaking about a partnership approach among all stakeholders where difficult choices need to be made with the aim of achieving sustained success. You know, it's like PowerPoint speak. Um, as soon as uh, someone who's supposed to come over and uh, take the buck, the buck stops here. You know, you don't pass the buck down the line. That's what the chief executive is supposed to be. As soon as you start, and we require a partnership approach among all stakeholders. For me, that says that this is the guy who's trying to spread the blame. First day on the job, he's trying to spread the blame. That means this man says, I'm not going to be able to do this job. His main task over the next three months is to find a replacement for Khadebe. Um, whether or not he's going to be able to get it right in three months, the entire central government has been able to do so in two months. Maybe one man all on his own, you know, a bit like a Trojan horse or something, is going to be able to go out there and find someone who's willing to go and take the blame for everything ESCOM has done over the last 10 years. Ever since... Um, um, it all started, you know, in 2007, actually. December 2007, that's where it all started. Old, um, uh, what was his name? Mbeki, Tabo Mbeki. Was enjoying his holiday, pipe in his mouth, sitting on the beach, watching the waves come in. And suddenly there was the chairman of ESCOM at his shoulder saying, Hey, boss, we've got a major crisis with ESCOM. You're not able to produce enough electricity. This is December 2017, over the holiday period. And... Uh, uh, halfway through January, a month later, uh, Tabo Mbeki had already organized a nuclear deal with France's Arriva. Um, uh, and that was the same year that Arriva was found to be planting mine line, uh, landmines in the Niger. Yeah, they had to pay like something like $161 million over to the uh, Niger government uh, because uh, Arriva... That's the name of the uh, French parastatal that both mines for uranium in Africa uh, and uh, also uh, constructs uh, nuclear power plants. Arriva, uh, that year, was found to have been planting landmines in the Niger, uh, uh, fomenting uh, war with the Tuareg. Yeah, that same company uh, was like, you know, over over the holiday period, appointed by Tabumbeki to be uh, the preferred partner to build South Africa's uh, new nuclear power plant. And the cannibalism of the ANC. The, the ANC is a cannibal party because the ANC eats itself. Uh, as soon as uh, Jacob Zuma Polokwani had been able to dislodge Tabumbeki, the first thing he did 
was cancel that nuclear deal. So the Mbeki nuclear deal was cancelled. And then number one got up to his old tricks. And, uh, you know, it took him a while, took him a bit longer than Tabo Mbeki. Didn't have just like one, uh, one holiday period in order to get everything sorted out. Uh, of course, I'm being facetious about Tabo Mbeki. Obviously, uh, it was a done deal before the Christmas break started in 2007. That's not what I'm saying. There's no way you can put together a nuclear deal over the holiday period. Impossible. Does not happen. Does not happen. Uh, old Tabo was, uh, you know, stage managing things uh, as best he could, having just managed to get rid of his deputy president. Um, and now he'd organized for himself a nice little uh, nuclear deal with France. Um, he'd just written a letter in Le Monde praising Nicolas Sarkozy, because Nicolas Sarkozy had just been to the University of Darfur. I think in the, the previous month he'd been to the University of Darfur, where he made that racist speech about the African peasant is, is uh, stuck in a dream world, dreaming of a golden past that never existed and must get ready for a new era of Eurafrique. And basically what that means is uh, France comes into Africa as like an old colonial power and uh, says who's going to be in charge and it takes all the money. That's basically what Eurafrique means. Uh, so anyway, uh, he, he went on a whole long rambling uh, diatribe of hate and ignorance and racism against Africa. And Tabo Mbeki then wrote a letter to Le Monde newspaper in France saying what a wonderful speech he'd made, congratulating him for that speech. Hmm? That's Tabo Mbeki. Tabo Mbeki, by the way, is also a member of the uh, Knights of St. John. Yes, that's right. He's an ambulance driver. You know those Knights of St. John guys, you know, you go for um, rugby matches on the weekend and so on. They're those... Um, Guys that sit at the, uh, the the black ambulance with the with the white cross in it, the Maltese cross in it, and uh, and they go in there and they you know give a, a wet sponge to a guy or maybe um, cart a guy off the field with a stretcher. Yeah, so that's Tabo Mbeki um, when he went and cozied up to uh, Queen Elizabeth. She made him a, a member of the Knights of Saint John which is basically the ambulance service. So our, our, our president of the country was in photograph beaming widely with a big sash across his chest, a bit, a bit like a Miss World contestant, you know. Um, and uh, he was made a member of the Knights of St. John. So we had a president who had now been made an ambulance driver by Mrs. What's her name? Elizabeth Saxe Coburg. Yes, Saxe Coburg. That's in fact the real surname of the British royal family. It's not Windsor. That's an affectation uh, that they took on in World War One when they wanted to hide the fact that they're actually of German descent. Yes, um, Prince Albert married Queen Victoria back in the 1800s uh, uh, when some of the worst excesses uh, against the colonies uh, were, were done, where Britain rose to its, its highest reaches as a colonial power. Uh, Queen Victoria, uh, she married um, Albert uh, Saxe Coburg, and so her surname also changed to Victoria Saxe Coburg. And then World War One broke out, and suddenly um, the British woke up, you know, and declared war on Germany, only to discover that the Germans had preemptively colonized their country by making their queen German. And so the queen had to like kind of downplay the fact that she was German, so she changed her surname to Windsor. Uh, when actually it was a king then by that stage, um, I can't remember, I think it was King George or something like that. Uh, king George then changed uh, the family name to Windsor. So, you know, they call them the Windsors, but in actual fact, they're the Saxe Coburgs. Uh, yeah, so Mrs. Uh, Saxe Coburg uh, made uh, our president an ambulance driver, and that was seen as a, as a major benefit to the country. Uh, we broke out into wild celebrations, almost as wild as we had in the, in the World Cup a few years later. But yes, Tabumbeki, 2007, puts together a nuclear deal while on holiday with a pipe in his mouth. Mm. 
Jacob Zuma, he's deposed deputy president, makes a comeback at Polokwane the next year, boots out his predecessor, boots out the nuclear deal, and then goes about quietly or rather loudly, in actual fact, and rather clumsily putting together a trillion rand plus nuclear deal. Well, look, you know, the man, the man might be short on ability, but you, you have to admit, I mean, he's very big on ambition. So there was Jacob Zuma, now put together a trillion rand nuclear deal. Um, uh, Russia seemed to be in the preferred bidder, which is the main reason why our mainstream media seemed to go against it. They wanted uh, Britain or France or America, you know, someone reliable, someone white. Um, yeah, but the Russians are also white. Yes, but they're not kind of right kind of white. Um, I don't know. That's something you can only understand if um, if you understand Boris Johnson's jokes, you know, about pickaninnies and things. Um, yeah, so uh, they didn't like the deal because it was, uh, it was going to bring in Russia, of course. And of course, they found nothing strange about Tom and Baker being able to put together a nuclear deal over the Christmas period uh, with France. They found nothing wrong with that. But when Jacob Zuma wanted to bring the Russians in, well, that was just like, that was just too crazy, man. And uh, Business Day and, uh, and their ilk were unable to accept it. And then, of course, now the first thing that um, uh, Sul Ramaphosa has done since he's come into office is cancel um, Jacob Zuma's trillion rand nuclear deal. But now we see that Gwede Mantashi is starting to speak about a nuclear deal. So it seems that him and um, and uh, Cyril, well, hopefully they'll be working together on this thing. Or maybe or maybe Cyril's kind of like dreaming of um, renewable energy with his brother-in-law, uh, Patrice Matsepe taking over the um, the renewable energy sector in South Africa. They're going to be called Mr. Green. And uh, Gwede Mantashi is going to be called Mr. Glow in the Dark. Yeah, he, I don't know. I don't know. Gwede Mantashi says, yeah, you know, nuclear is not off the table. Uh, I, w- I would say that is um, maybe a common sense approach. Uh, renewable energy, for all the talk that people go on about, about countries going on to 100% um, renewable energy, is not always reliable, and you have to have a fallback position. And uh, if you're not going to have a fallback position on coal, then you have to have to fall back onto nuclear. But as I've pointed out on the show before as well, if we do move to that kind of world, that kind of energy mix uh, internationally, then that means that the um, the nuclear, uh, what do they call it, um, 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 Uranium two three two. When you, you you know when you when you raise it up to weapons grade uranium, uh, you uh, you you know you make it stronger. You make it more radioactive. You increase the radioactivity. Um, the people who do the increasing radioactivity of uranium, the people who treat uranium for energy purposes, are going to become the new energy suppliers. And when you think about that and you think about the role of the Middle East in terms of they are the world's energy suppliers at the moment, they supply the oil. Uh, and look at the, the kind of like political nightmare that we have in Arabia at the moment as a result of uh, oil being uh, the major energy source in the world. If we go over to nuclear, then uh, the people that enrich uranium, there's the word, enrich uranium, the uranium enriches are going to become the world's fuel suppliers. And that may be the reason why the United States doesn't want Iran enriching uranium. They want to limit the amount of people who can enrich uranium. And it would look as though Jeff Khadebe, uh, by uh, almost paralyzing the Nuclear Energy Corporation in South Africa, has now been resuscitated under Gwede Mantashi by the looks of things. Um, yeah, uh, we, we could also be one of the, en- the energy suppliers in that new world. So anyway, that's something interesting to think about. We're going to have to stop the show there, run out of time. Jazakumla for joining us. And make dua that whatever trading activity you got up today is profitable. And above all, halal. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.